Welcome to the KSTE Farm Hour. Here's KSTE's Farmer Fred, Fred Hoffman. Things look a little different at the farmer's markets in the Sacramento area this week. The fresh produce on display is hidden by tarps. What are they hiding from? The Oriental Fruit Fly. We'll tell you how the CDFA and Sacramento County are attacking this voracious pest of over 200 fruit and vegetable varieties. The proposed 2018 Farm Bill is back under discussion in Washington, but California's ag community is watching the progress very carefully, including trying to find the answer to the question, are fields of hemp in your future? Also, to no one's surprise, the costs of repairing Oroville Dam have skyrocketed, and the dam has received another unsatisfactory rating. All that, crop reports, and more on this week's KSTE Farm Hour. Let's get started. Local farmers, as well as those farmers outside of the Sacramento area who are bringing their crops into the local farmers' markets, they're learning to adapt to the Oriental Fruit Fly Quarantine Area. Home gardeners have been warned that if they live within the quarantine area, they're being discouraged from moving their fruits, nuts, and vegetables away from their residence. And they have to double bag any damaged goods and put them in their regular trash, not the green waste barrel. But among the local farming community, which crops are at most risk in the battle against the oriental fruit fly, which can lay its eggs in over 200 commodities? And there's one exception. Sacramento County Agricultural Commissioner Julie Jensen explains. In Sacramento County, luckily we have almost no commercial producers. I'm talking about large ag commercial producers within the quarantine area. Unfortunately, the quarantine area does extend over into Yolo County, and it does pull in some of their um, agricultural cropland. Uh, so they do have commercial producers who are affected. Um, also, our, the way the quarantine's drawn right now, the southern end of it, it does not get into our grapes and our pears, but that is an issue if it does expand. If we find more flies that are south of where we've currently been finding them, it could push down into our commercial cropland, and that would that would be really difficult. The pears, you know, have been in; they're harvested right now, so that would be very difficult for them. Where the quarantine is right now is going to primarily affect some of our small certified producers and our small urban farms, especially the things that they're harvesting right now: tomatoes. In order to uh, sell things out of the quarantine area, post material out of the quarantine area, it has to be treated a minimum of four times during a 30-day period. And some of these vegetables, like these tomatoes, they can't hold for 30 days. They're ready to come off now. They will not hold for 30 days. And so, therefore, that pretty much uh, negates the sale of that commodity from anybody that's inside the quarantine area. Their options are they can process that fruits or vegetables. So if they have tomatoes, they could make it into salsa or make it into spaghetti sauce, um, but they can't sell it as fresh tomatoes. Are there any crops that are exempt from this quarantine that you know of? Uh, yes, actually only host material. So there are a few things that don't fall under the host material. And, and for us, one of the big ones is our strawberry growers won't be affected because strawberries um, are not, well, it's not that they're not a host of this fruit fly. The issue is the strawberry fruit is so short-lived that it's not long enough for the fly to complete its life cycle. 
so the fruit actually comes on, ripens, and is picked quicker than the fruit fly can develop. The Oriental Fruit Fly finds were located in the Lemon Hill area of Sacramento near Elder Creek and Stockton Boulevards. But the quarantine area in Sacramento County is roughly 123 square miles. It's bordered by El Camino Avenue on the north, on the south by Laguna Boulevard, on the west by the Sacramento River, and on the east by Bradshaw Road. And as Jensen pointed out, the quarantine zone does extend into a portion of Yolo County's Delta Farming Region. Jay Van Ryan is the spokesperson for the California Department of Food and Agriculture. He says although the lifespan of the oriental fruit fly is short, the quarantine is likely to continue through the winter because that fruit fly lives longer during colder weather. Yeah, it, it depends. It's highly temperature dependent. So when it's hot, like it has been for the last month or two, uh, it may be as short as a few weeks. But when it's cooler you know, over the winter months, it may be a few months. So it's... Uh, there's a, a kind of a wild uh, range of uh, of life cycles for something like a fruit fly. Most insects are like that, not all, but, uh, but all the fruit flies certainly are very much governed by temperature. The oriental fruit fly eradication treatment, known as the male attractant technique, is conducted in an area defined by a one and a half mile radius from each fly find site for a minimum of nine square miles. Approximately 600 small gel-like bait stations per square mile are applied to the sides of individual utility poles and street trees on public right-of-ways. These bait stations contain a powerful male attractant, methyl eugenol, and that's mixed with a small amount of an insecticide. The bait station will attract and kill male fruit flies before they can breed. And in the absence of males, the females go unmated and no offspring can be produced. That effectively causes the extinction of the pest population. The attractant is very specific for this group of flies, so much so that other insects such as bees or butterflies won't be harmed because they're not attracted to that lure. The new Agriculture Department farm income forecast for this year is probably not going to be a surprise to anyone. We're showing farm income in general down uh, relative to 2017. USDA's Chief Economist Rob Johansson forecasting net farm income at $65.7 billion, down 13% from 2017. Net cash income, $91.5 billion, a drop of 12%. Now, yes, part of that is from lower commodity prices, but he says that's partially offset by higher production. And so, actually... The big change is the increase in production expenditures, up by about $12 billion or about three and a third percent. We do expect feed costs to rise. Um, we are expected to see an increase in meat production uh, in 2018 and 2019, and so that is contributing to higher feed uh, expenditures. We've seen petroleum prices rising, and that's expected to increase the fuel and oil costs for producers. Labor costs are higher than we expected, higher than last year. Rent is going up, taxes are going up, Interest payments on debt is up significantly by about 17%. And so is debt, total farm debt, expected up by 3.5%. Highest debt levels in real terms since 1982. We did see an increase in uh, debt-to-asset ratios to 13.4%. It has been rising, and we do know that the cost to finance that debt is increasing as well as a percentage of 
net farm income. And zeroing in on the roughly 50% of U.S. farms which produce 90% of the goods, Johansson says those farm businesses hold 80% of farm sector debt and one in every 10 of those farms is either highly leveraged with a debt-to-asset ratio 40 to 70% or very highly leveraged with that ratio 71% or higher. That Overall, 1 in 10 situation has been pretty steady over the last couple of years, but Johansson says... There was a increase in the number of very highly leveraged crop farms. With more moving out of the highly leveraged category into that precarious, very highly leveraged group. Finally, one other thing is contributing to bringing farm income down, and that's a more than 17% drop in government payments to farmers. However, Johansson says the payments in the trade assistance package just announced are not included in this estimate because... We do not know when those payments will be made and how big those payments will be. In Washington, Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Here's this week's California crop report. In the Sacramento Valley, rice is progressing well. Alfalfa is being cut and baled. Corn is harvested for silage. Sunflower harvest is ongoing. Down in Tulare County, the cotton and black-eyed beans continue to be irrigated and cultivated. Corn and sorghum were harvested for silage, and alfalfa was cut and baled. Grape vineyards are being irrigated, table grape harvest is ongoing, raisin grapes are being harvested and laid out for sun drying. Some early wine grapes are being harvested. Peaches, nectarines, pears, plums, pomegranates, and figs were harvested. Stone fruit orchards are being sprayed, irrigated, and fertilized. Summer pruning and topping of harvested stone fruit orchards continues. Some old orchards are being torn out for replacement with newer trees. Persimmon fruit was showing some color. Lemons and limes are being harvested. The Valencia orange harvest continues with light volumes. Citrus groves are being skirted, hedgerowed, and irrigated. Naval orange fruit thinning began in Tulare County. Pushed-out citrus groves are being prepped for planting. Almond, walnut, and pistachio orchard irrigation continues. Orchard floors were being prepped for harvest. The harvest was underway in almond and pistachio groves. Walnut orchard maintenance is ongoing. Among the vegetables, cucumbers, peppers, and tomatoes are still being harvested in Tulare County. Processing tomatoes continues to be harvested in the Sacramento Valley. Rangeland and non-irrigated pasture was mostly in poor condition. Cattle were provided supplemental feed to compensate for the deficient nutritional value of the rangeland forage. Sheep are grazing on fallowed fields. Cooler temperatures are stimulating milk production. Take the KSTE Farm Hour with you wherever you go. It's available at KSTE.com or the iHeartRadio app in streaming mode, or you can download it from your favorite third-party podcast aggregator, such as iTunes. More of the KSTE Farm Hour is on the way. And now let's get back to the KSTE Farm Hour. The Department of Water Resources Division of Safety of Dams have just concluded a review of California's 1,200 dams. Of all those dams, there's only one that's listed as unsatisfactory. And I bet you can guess which one that is. Yep, the Oroville Dam. And this is the second year in a row that the Oroville Dam has been listed as unsatisfactory. However, more than 700 workers are reconstructing the spillways that collapsed back in February of 2017, forcing an evacuation of some 180,000 people living downstream. And as you might imagine, the locals are watching closely what the Department of Water Resources is doing. They have their suspicions. Art Hatley is an Oroville City Councilman, and he recently told KCRA 3 News. A lot of our businesses lost money because they had to close when they evacuated the city. And so 
there's a lot of concern still that they want to make sure DWR and, and is going to manage this properly. DWR spokesman Aaron Mellon says that all structural concrete will be in place by November 1st on the main spillway, but there's still a lot of work to be done. On the main spillway, the upper chute is only 63% complete. The emergency spillway, they're still rolling concrete on the south half of that emergency spillway, and that's 72% complete. And as you might imagine, the cost keeps going up and up. Back when the initial repair contract was awarded back in 2017, the amount was $275 million. In new figures released from the Department of Water Resources, the current estimate for the emergency response and reconstruction of the main and emergency spillways has zoomed up to $1.1 billion. The day after Labor Day became a time of interest for many agricultural producers impacted by recent, ongoing trade disputes and disruptions. The first day of sign-up and rollout of programs offered by the Agriculture Department to mitigate these impacts. Some months ago, President Trump instructed me as Secretary of Agriculture to prepare a strategy to protect our farmers and ranchers from these unfair retaliatory tariffs. And Secretary Sonny Perdue and senior USDA officials released details of this three-pronged approach days before the holiday, explaining how this triad of expanding foreign market development, purchasing commodities for domestic feeding programs, and payments to impacted growers would provide some relief and will allow time for the president to strike long-lasting trade deals to benefit our entire economy. I'm Rod Bain. And a look at USDA's trade disruption mitigation package in the face of changing trade developments is the subject of this edition of Agriculture USA. In many ways, and emphasized by Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue and senior Agriculture Department officials, USDA's package of programs designed to help farmers and ranchers affected by significant trade disruptions are short-term in nature. Take, for instance, payments to impacted producers of major commodities affected by tariff disputes. Overseeing the market facilitation program is USDA's Farm Service Agency. The Undersecretary for Farm Production and Conservation, Bill Northey, shares established payment rates for major commodities. Wheat is 14 cents a bushel times 50% of the production for 2018. Sorghum is 86 cents per bushel and soybeans is $1.65 per bushel. For corn, it is one cent per bushel times 50% of the 2018 production and for cotton, it's six cents per pound. Dairy and pork producers are also set to receive payments under MFP. The total number of pigs that they have on hand on their operation that they own as of August 1st, 50% of that production will earn $8 per pig. And for dairy, we will use margin protection historical production number, and it's 12 cents a hundred times that production number. In total, about $4.7 billion, with a B, dollars in payments is projected for this initial offering, with future payments dependent upon continued trade disruptions. Meanwhile, some export commodities affected by this tariff fight will be purchased and distributed to local feeding programs under a program administered by the Agricultural Marketing Service. And we will purchase up to $1.2 billion in commodities under this program. The purchases would purportedly be made over four different phases in order to accommodate changes due to growing conditions, product availability, market conditions, or even trade negotiation status, and of course, program capacity. 
Undersecretary for Marketing and Regulatory Programs Greg Ibaugh says since the commodities to be purchased are high-end products specifically tailored for the export market, emphasis is on avoiding displacement of products and distributors already serving local feeding and nutrition programs. That means we are working very closely with the Food and Nutrition Service to identify feeding programs that will be able to take advantage of these new products. We are working to attract new vendors and have them qualify to be able to make purchases. Perhaps of a longer-term focus in terms of potentially establishing new export markets is the Agricultural Trade Promotion Program. The Undersecretary for Trade and Foreign Agricultural Affairs, Ted McKinney, says $200 million for this program will be used to develop export opportunities, like the intent of existing USDA foreign market development offerings. Things like consumer advertising, public relations, point-of-sale demonstrations, participation in trade fairs and exhibits, market research, technical assistance, and the like. Yet ATP for commodity organizations and export businesses differs from offerings like the Foreign Agricultural Services Market Access Program in that we have a little more flexibility and I think it'll be more streamlined than perhaps has been experienced in the past. Part of USDA's trade disruption mitigation package, such as payments, could be revisited in the future with perhaps a second announcement possible if warranted. The hope of Secretary Sonny Perdue and U.S. Agriculture, though, is advances in long-term, stable trade deals, such as the recent agreement with Mexico. Mexico has historically been a great customer and partner, and we're happy to have this resolved for agricultural producers. That would avoid a second round of payments. This has been Agriculture USA. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. There are 1.8 million dairy cows in California. And via burping, flatulence, and manure, they're all creating methane gas, one of the greenhouse gases California is set to reduce. And there actually have been some positive results on that front. In Australia last year, researchers found that just 2% seaweed in cattle feed could reduce methane emissions by 99%. The seaweed apparently inhibits an enzyme that contributes to methane production. Here in California, researchers at UC Davis are attempting to replicate that study. And last spring, they were able to reduce methane emissions by more than 30% in a dozen Holstein cows that ate a seaweed variety known as macro red algae, which was mixed into their feed and sweetened with molasses to disguise the salty taste. If successful, adding seaweed to cattle feed could help California's dairy farms comply with a state law requiring livestock operators to cut emissions by 40 percent from 2013 levels by the year 2030. The UC Davis researchers say they plan to conduct a six-month study of a seaweed-infused diet in beef cattle, and that'll start in October. The voracious stink bug, an ugly and smelly insect that is widely despised for its appetite for a wide range of crops. Well, stink bugs are a major pest worldwide. Dorothea Tall, a biology professor at Virginia Tech, says she is part of a team that is researching how stink bugs communicate with each other chemically. And even more specifically, how do insects uh, synthesize pheromones that they use in order to attract mates or to aggregate on food plants. Getting a better understanding of how stink bugs synthesize pheromones is important because there are real-world applications. We can use this knowledge to generate plants that would function as sustainable factories for making these pheromones. So these plants could release the pheromone in the field 
and serve as expandable so-called trap crops or sink crops or plants that would lure the pest away from the actual crop field. In other words, these plants could serve as decoys. The advantage here is that these trap plants would release the natural pheromone over a longer time period continuously. And so this practice could replace traditional baits that are used in fields with synthetic pheromone that you need to reapply over and over again. The Virginia Tech team has been working with scientists at USDA's Agricultural Research Service. The harlequin stink bugs being studied prefer crucifer crops like cabbage. And they could show specifically for the harlequin bug if you are combining the crucifer trap crop with the pheromone in the field, this has very strong attractive effects on the insect. So if we can combine host plant volatiles, as we say, plant volatiles with the pheromone, we think we have a very specific way and very efficient way to attract these bugs and lure them away from the crop field. Which adds another tool to the toolbox. Our modern agriculture still relies on chemical and synthetic insecticides, broad-spectrum insecticides such as neonicotinoids. We know that these pesticides have side effects, harmful effects on other insects, pollinators for instance, honeybees. We also know that pests are continuously developing resistances against these insecticides. Tall's team is in the test phase of its work. This is Stephanie Ho for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. We've got more of the KSTE Farm Hour right after this. And now let's get back to the KSTE Farm Hour. California's 77,500 farms and ranches produce 50% of the nation's fruits, nuts, and vegetables, 20% of the milk, and more than 400 different agricultural commodities. That's why the state's farmers and ag-related businesses are watching closely the progress of passage of the 2018 Farm Bill back in Washington, D.C. The USDA's Rod Bain has more. We must agree to a bill that provides the much-needed certainty and predictability they deserve. There's much in the Farm Bill that is worth protecting, and there are some critical mission areas that need improving. We need to focus on ways to create jobs in rural communities. We're all here for the same reason, to deliver for the people who count on the programs within this bill. Leaders of the Joint House and Senate Conference Committee Wednesday kicking off the effort to pass a new Farm Bill. With a deadline of September 30th before the current Farm Bill expires, this Congressional Committee will spend this month not only crafting the legislation, but finding solutions to issues of difference between the House and Senate versions of the bill. To those who say passing a farm bill in this environment is a daunting task, I say together we can get it done. The good news is that I've seen no disagreement that should prevent us from completing a strong farm bill and completing it on time. One thing we all agree on is the urgent need to pass a five-year farm bill. We have one goal, and that is to get this farm bill done. Farmers are counting on it. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture at Washington, D.C. At that House-Senate conference committee opening last week, Senator Mitch McConnell, Senate Majority Leader, put in a plug for one of his favorite crops. Now, it's no secret I'm particularly excited about the parts of the Senate passed bill that concern industrial hemp, and I want to recognize my friend and colleague, Congressman Comer from Western Kentucky, who, as Commissioner of Agriculture before he came to Congress, uh, was the first Kentuckian to take a major lead role in what has now developed into a national consensus, I believe, that industrial hemp deserves a comeback. And I think the confusion with its more controversial cousin has largely been eliminated, and I particularly want to give him a shout-out, not only now here to finish the job 
as a member of this conference, but we're really starting this issue uh, in our state. There was a farm product that was grown by some of our nation's greatest presidents, Washington, Jefferson, Madison. And it may have a future for farmers all over the United States, including California. It can be grown to harvest on about half as much water as corn. It tolerates a wide variety of temperatures and soils. It grows really fast, about 20 feet in 100 days. And you talk about revenue. If you if you think all you want in life is a few acres in Sonoma County to grow red wine grapes, you may want to grow this crop because revenue could be as much as $90,000 per acre for just one of its products. And it's a product that my thrifty uncle Huber would have embraced on the family farm in North Dakota, as he was very fond of saying about his pork livestock, we use all parts of the pig except for the oink. And this commodity as well has a wide variety of uses, 25,000 different products. But there's this one itty bitty problem. Growing this product is mostly illegal, but that's changing. And you probably have already guessed we're talking about hemp. There was a wonderful article in the May 16th edition of Water Deeply written by former Sacramento Bee reporter Matt Weiser. And Matt, uh, hemp legalization is poised to transform agriculture if it gets the okay. Well, that's right. Uh, It's already legal in many states on a quote-unquote trial basis um, because the 2014 Farm Bill allowed hemp to be grown on no more than 50 acres at a time um, as long as your state and county create a program to oversee it. But that was enough to kick it off in many states, especially states that have already legalized marijuana, which is a cousin of hemp, but hemp does not contain the psychoactive components that are in marijuana. It does contain a whole bunch of other things that are um, important to clothing and building materials and food and a lot of other things. In your article, you point out the history of that and basically how hemp got uh, thrown out, sort of like the baby with the bathwater back in the 1930s. Talk a little bit about that. Hemp was, back in that time, there was no way to distinguish hemp from marijuana. We hadn't yet figured out the uh, chemical components that that make marijuana psychoactive versus the lack of it in hemp. So they were grouped together. They're also very difficult to distinguish visually. So they were grouped together, and hemp was banned along with marijuana in the um, Controlled Substances Act, and it wasn't until the 1970s that we figured out how to tell them apart chemically. Until very recently, hemp has remained a controlled substance like marijuana. So basically, in marijuana, the active, the psychoactive ingredient is THC. In hemp, there's a product that is produced from hemp called CBD, and CBD oil, as your article points out, is a very popular and effective therapeutic treatment for many health problems. Right. The the interesting thing is that marijuana has both THC and CBD, but hemp only has CBD, and that's the big distinction. CBD is already used in a lot of lotions and oils and various kinds of other supplements and treatments to help with muscle pain and um, stress even. It's also used as a treatment for people who suffer um, the ill effects of concussions. It can help control seizures and things like that. So right now in the U.S., CBD oil is the primary, maybe the only uh, marketable product from hemp. 
until we get the market to grow larger and be able to process the fibers in hemp. You pointed out a little bit earlier that hemp modified legalization happened with the Farm Bill back in 2014, uh, which was introduced by uh, Senator Mitch McConnell of Kentucky. And he has introduced a new hemp legalization bill that's currently working around Congress uh, for the new Farm Bill that would also legalize uh, hemp. But again, it's going to be on a state by state basis. I think the whole idea of this federal legislation is just to keep the feds out of the way of the state. Yeah, whether it's in the new Farm Bill or separate legislation, um, the McConnell bill would um, throw open the door to full legalization of hemp, meaning that um, uh, unlike right now, you would not have to get a federal background check before you can grow hemp. It would be treated like any other crop, basically. You would not have to have a special state or county program to monitor you while you grow hemp. You could simply plant hemp and find a market for it. Currently, what are the states that are growing it, as they would say, for research purposes only? Well, there's about two dozen states that are currently growing it, and they're all in very small numbers because of how the rules are written currently. But what's interesting is that the growth has been phenomenal. Um, for instance, in, in 2016, Fred, your home state of North, North Dakota grew 70 acres of hemp, and then last year it grew over 3,000 acres. So that's phenomenal growth in one year. If only Uncle Hubert was alive to enjoy that. Right. The same occurred in Oregon, where um, in 2016 they grew 500 acres of hemp, and then last year about 3,500. So word is getting around the potential, the the market potential is um, getting to be uh, understood. And so more people are taking advantage of this narrow window in the law to start planting hemp. So I presume that if it is fully legalized, you're going to see very rapid growth. Let's talk a little bit about the plant itself. I, I mentioned early on the fact that it can use about half the water that other crops like corn and alfalfa would use. And it, it grows really fast and it uh, can be grown on a wide variety of soils and in various temperatures, too. It, it sounds like an amazing adaptable crop. It is. Uh, it, it uses a lot less water than um, a lot of common field or forage crops like corn or like alfalfa. However, it does require a lot of water in the first three weeks of growth to get it established. But then after that, it's very drought tolerant. So you can, if you have water, um, you can you can grow it in very arid environments or in places that are subject to severe drought like any place in the West. When we come back, we continue our discussion about hemp, a farm product that could bring in as much as $90,000 an acre. We continue our conversation with Matt Weiser from Water Deeply when we come back to the KSTE Farm Hour right after this. And now let's get back to the KSTE Farm Hour. Let's continue our conversation with Matt Weiser, author of the Water Deeply article, Hemp Legalization Poised to Transform Agriculture in the Arid West. Yes, we're talking hemp, a very widely adaptable crop, a very drought-tolerant crop, and one with a myriad of uses with great income, as much as $90,000 an acre for its oil alone. But Weiser offers a warning that as commodities go up in supply, the price goes down. But hemp has a built-in resistance to price drop due to the wide variety of uses it can be put to. There, you know, fairly small uh, acreages of hemp can produce a lot of revenue. Presumably down the road, we'll get to a point where the market for CBD oil is saturated and probably prices will come down. 
But by that point, these other markets for hemp, fiber, and building products will emerge, presumably, and create new markets for hemp. We all know that back in the day, a lot of rope and heavy cloth used to be made from hemp. Um, But these days, you can also use the, the hemp fibers, basically the waste material from harvesting other products using hemp, can be turned into building materials like construction blocks or panels that can be made to build houses and and commercial buildings. This would also be a great opportunity for some ancillary businesses if uh, hemp gets legalized, because you point out in your article, there's no equipment in the United States capable of processing the fiber from hemp. I imagine at one point in time, America had this kind of equipment because we used to make a lot of things out of hemp. But You know, nearly 100 years have gone by, and that equipment doesn't exist in this country anymore. So there's a program in Pennsylvania right now that's um, being led in part by the National Hemp Association to create enough of a, a local crop in hemp to make it sensible to develop this equipment so that the fibers can be processed there. And that's kind of what needs to happen all over the country again. So once we see more acres being planted in hemp, there will be market incentives to start developing the equipment to process the fiber domestically. Another business I could see developing from this uh, would be for maybe people who will run greenhouse operations, and that's culling out the male plant from the female plant, because you mentioned in the article there is a chance the feds might put restrictions that you can only grow the female plant. Right, and the reason for that is that um, the hemp and marijuana can cross-pollinate, and your hemp could essentially become marijuana, and you don't want that because you don't want to be restricted by the laws that govern marijuana growing if all you want to do is grow hemp. So in some cases right now, you cannot plant hemp unless you're five miles away from the nearest marijuana grower. Or you, in addition, you may have to be able to prove that you're only growing male hemp plants, which cannot cross-pollinate. So right now what some people are doing is, is growing the plants in the greenhouse, and you cannot figure out which plant you have until they reach a certain age. So you grow them in the greenhouse, and then you call out the ones that you cannot plant. So, yes, there could be a market for somebody who, who does this in the greenhouse and then sells the, the plant to farmers later on. Now, let's talk a little bit, though, about as far as consumption goes, uh, the possibilities of this being a human food. Right now in, in America, you can go into pretty much any grocery store and find hemp seed or hemp oil. Uh, if not any grocery store, then a natural foods type store, you can find this stuff on the shelf. Hemp oil and and the seed are both extremely nutritious. They offer uh, nutritional benefits that um, are popular with people who are vegetarians or vegans because you they, they provide some nutrients that you can't get um, otherwise. Hemp oil has some cooking properties that are attractive to cooks that, that can't be found in other oils. Um, hemp oil is also used cosmetically as a as a lotion and a hair treatment and all kinds of things like that. Hemp hemp seed is also very high in protein as well. And I would think, too, growing hemp would be especially interesting to farmers in California, especially those in the southern part of the state where arid conditions may take hold a lot sooner. Water will become more expensive if available at all. And yet here's a, a commodity that can be grown on half the water of most field crops. 
Right. I think we'll probably see hemp being grown in California on a large scale eventually. Um, last year, there there wasn't any hemp recorded as being grown in California, but a lot of this, uh, a lot of the growth in the crop tracks where marijuana has already been legalized. So California just legalized it for recreational purposes. So I imagine very soon we'll see people starting to grow hemp in its wake. And another interesting property of hemp is that it basically requires no pesticides to grow. So you're not going to have the water quality uh runoff problems that you have on a lot of other farms growing other types of crops. Now, again, even though it may pass in the farm bill on the federal level, it would still need to be okayed as far as for hemp growing on massive acres by California, wouldn't it? I think that kind of remains unclear right now. My understanding is once it's legalized at the federal level, it becomes legal everywhere as as any other kind of crop. You know, you don't you generally don't need your state's approval to plant corn or alfalfa. So I think once it's legalized by the feds, uh, it'll be okay to grow it anywhere. Would this also be a, a big tax day for the states too? Can they tax this product? Well, they probably could implement a special tax on hemp growing. I imagine that would be resisted by the farm industry though, uh, because you know we don't see that with with any other regular crop. It's not like marijuana where you have a need to regulate it for the, the, the drug side effects that it creates. So I, the answer is sure it could be taxed, but it seems like that would be a risky move for most states. Well, it just might be a product that will supplant almonds and wine grapes and dairy as one of the biggest California commodities. It's hemp, and we'll see what happens. Check out the article at waterdeeply.com written by Matt Weiser, Hemp Legalization Poised to Transform Agriculture in Arid West. It's a fine article. And Matt, thanks for talking with us, and best of luck. Thanks for having me. Despite tariffs on many U.S. goods, which kicked in back in July and could continue through the end of the 2018 fiscal year, September 30th. We did see a boost in USDA's uh, estimated 2018 export number. Agriculture Department Chief Economist Rob Johansson, USDA in its new forecast, raising the export projection by $1.5 billion from its May forecast up to $144 billion, which would be $3.8 billion more than 2017. Part of that due to bad weather in South America, which has cut corn and soybean meal production. The tariffs, though, are showing in reduced soybean sales. USDA was already forecasting about a $2 billion drop from 2017 down to 21.9. We brought it down in, in August August now again to $21.8 billion. But for most products, he says... The major uh, effect of the tariffs will be to divert trade from China to other countries. For 2018, now for the 2019 fiscal year, Johansson looking for U.S. ag exports to top this year by half a billion dollars, 144 and a half. Mostly uh, driven by some higher exports of wheat, and we expect that there may be some problems in countries like Uh, Australia with their uh, drought that they're facing right now in their wheat production. Wheat export values could go from this year's $5.7 billion to just over $7 billion. Other products showing maybe some increase next year, rice, broilers, and horticultural products. Corn values expected to hold steady with this year to $11.2 billion. Cotton steady at just under $7 billion. Look for exports to drop for beef, pork, and dairy products. And once again, soybean exports could take a hit. Back in 2017, the U.S. exported $23.8 billion worth of beef. The 2019 forecast, 21 billion. Down 800 million from 
2018 and almost 2.8 billion from 2017 exports of soybeans. All this assuming that tariffs continue and at current levels. Meanwhile, even though total exports of all farm products are expected to go up this year and next, the U.S. ag trade surplus, it's... Turning around and going the opposite direction. Fiscal 2017, the U.S. posted a $21 billion ag trade surplus. This year, it looks like it'll be falling to $19.5 billion. And falling again into 2019. Down to $18 billion. Not, of course, because of exports going down, but... Imports going up. With imports this year expected to be up $5.5 billion from 2017, up another $2 billion in fiscal year 2019. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Washington. Farmers and ranchers in 13 western states are calling on the federal government to utilize more effective land management practices and policies. Wildfires are a risk to all forms of agriculture, and when land management fails to protect against wildfires, farmers and ranchers suffer. Ryan Yates, American Farm Bureau Federation Congressional Relations Director, says federal prairies and forests need better management. A let it burn policy is not appropriate. Those resilient forests can withstand the type of fires that occur naturally in the West, but when they are overloaded and dense and unhealthy, they'll suffer from insect and disease infestation station and be subject to long-term catastrophic fire risk. And those are the things that we're trying to avoid. A letter by a coalition of State Farm Bureau organizations urges the administration to use active land management. Yates says that includes forestry and grazing provisions. As residents and neighbors in these western communities, we want to see this administration grab onto the issue of active land management to pursue new policies and new decisions that will truly turn the pendulum the other directions. We want to see an active Bureau of Land Management, an active Forest Service collaborating with those rural communities so that you can come up with plans that are going to be sustainable moving forward. Without a change in policy and management practices, Yates says rural communities will suffer. If our public lands are constantly on fire, nobody's going to want to visit our recreation community. We can't utilize those rangelands for our livestock. And the same thing goes for our forest products industries. We depend on sustainable landscapes in the West, and currently the practices that we've seen for the last few decades on our public lands are not sustainable. Michael Clements, Washington. Thanks for listening to the KSTE Farm Hour. Heard every Sunday from noon until 1 p.m. Pacific Time and available anytime as a podcast. Download it at kste.com.